Hello, I'm Nadia Singh, and welcome to IDSA's podcast series, COVID-19, What's Happening Now? This podcast aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by talking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be discussing the disparate impact of COVID-19 by racial, socioeconomic, and geographical factors. To discuss these are Dr. Jasmine Marcellin with the University of Nebraska Medical Center and Damani Piggott of Johns Hopkins University. Thank you both so much for being here. Dr. Piggott, I'd like to start with you. What communities or populations in particular have been disproportionately impacted by COVID-19? Per reporting from the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Dashboard, as of today, May 7th, there have been over 3.8 million cases and over 266,000 deaths uh, from COVID-19 worldwide. With these numbers, the toll of the COVID-19 pandemic is really hard to understate. Behind these numbers lies the devastating impact of this virus in terms of loss of human lives and human potential, which frankly seems immeasurable. Here in the U.S., there have been over 1.2 million cases and over 74,000 deaths as of today. And within this data, it has clearly been emerging that coronavirus is disproportionately impacting those who historically and contemporaneously have been among the most vulnerable around us. In the U.S., these fault lines have existed across race, ethnicity, income, geography and neighborhood, housing status, and institutions, including incarcerated populations, among others, effectively across long, vulnerable population groups exposed to really marked historical challenge in health and disparate structural social supports. Data from the CDC, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, as of yesterday, May 6th, shows that, for example, Blacks uh, or African-Americans who make up just about 12% of the U.S. population constituted 28% of identified COVID-19 cases in the U.S. That's among for which cases reported with race reporting as well. From this same data, the Latinx or Hispanic population who make up just about 17% of the total U.S. population comprise 26% of U.S. COVID-19 cases. And so not only are these populations overrepresented in terms of cases, they're also overrepresented in terms of severity of disease. Another report similarly from CDC on hospitalizations across 14 states uh, has shown that whereas Blacks made up 18% of those communities, 33% of hospitalized patients across these states were African-American. And so that disproportionate impact is also clearly being seen as well in COVID-19 related deaths. So emerging data shows that counties that have an above average uh, Black population, for example, have more COVID-19 deaths than counties that do not. Uh, and in New York City, where the burden of the epidemic has been profound, death rates for Blacks and Latinx persons have been reported to be up to twofold higher than other groups. Um, I think that's where the data has been emerging uh, most significantly in terms of what's been reported. Clearly, again, considerations around geography, income, neighborhood, housing status and institutions also will come into further relief as we go along. Thank you for that answer, Dr. Piggott. Dr. Marcellin, I'd like to turn to you now. What factors do you see contributing to the disparate impacts of COVID-19? There's a lot of things that can contribute to this. And before I get into that, just kind of piggybacking on what Dr. Piggott mentioned in terms of disparities in the 
Black and Hispanic communities, I think there's also there's another uh, group of individuals that we uh, need to be speaking about, and that's our Native American population. And there's not as much information and data being reported uh, nationwide regarding the cases, hospitalizations, and deaths among Native American individuals. And in some states, the Native American population is lumped into the other category, or it may be lumped into Asian category, or it may just not be reported at all. However, we do have data that is coming from the Navajo Nation, which consists of counties within Arizona, Utah, and New Mexico that have demonstrated uh, significant numbers of case burden for the Navajo Nation population. So we see uh, numbers that range from anywhere between um, uh, hundreds of cases to uh, almost 500 cases in individual counties. Um, in some cases, you may even have upwards of 700 cases within those counties. And those numbers may seem small relative to the number of cases in other states, but when you consider the small numbers of the indigenous population living in the Navajo Nation, um, the rate is unacceptably high. And their health department has calculated a cumulative incidence rate per 10,000 of over 1,000 per 10,000 in several of those cases. Um, and the, the Indian Health Services has only about you know, 12 or 1300 beds, less than 50 intensive care units, and many of those people that are covered by IHS are hours away from the nearest facility. And so I think that's a, a group that we don't speak a lot about, but still needs to be uh, in the spotlight as uh, another population that is vulnerable to the impacts of this pandemic. Now, as far as what are the causes, um, why do we see these uh, disparate numbers within specific populations, there's a number of reasons. I think a, a lot of them may be rooted in um, some of the structural inequities that have existed, that have predated the pandemic. Um, this is not something that is brand new that the pandemic is causing these disparities. What it is doing is uncovering what many of us have already known to be there. So if you take, for example, the African-American community, a lot of the reasons why individuals may be at higher risk, for example, uh, the fact that they may be working, they may be more likely to work at the essential jobs. And the essential jobs are the, the jobs that are needed to keep the economy going in some way. Black Americans are disproportionately represented in nine out of 10 of those high contact essential services, including uh, jobs like psychiatric aids, 
orderlies, nursing assistants, cooks and restaurant workers, working at pharmacies, doing food preps for institution, childcare workers, pharmacy technicians, and medical assistants. And what that means is only about 20% of African-American workers can actually work at home. And so when we think about directives like work from home or uh, stay home, that does not apply to the vast majority of people in minority communities. Furthermore, uh, most of the individuals who are working in these um, lower income uh, essential jobs are the ones who are most likely to be fired or furloughed during a pandemic and, and um, more likely to have um, negative consequences for staying home sick and so more likely to then go to work sick. Uh, a large percentage of people who are homeless or incarcerated are African-American. Um, large percentage of people relying on public service and public transport are African-American. And in the, we see you know, similar trends amongst our Hispanic population as well. And so why are they more likely to be working these jobs and more likely to have housing or food insecurity or financial insecurity dates back even further to much of the structural oppression that occurred in our country as a result of systemic racism coming in from even beyond before the slavery times. And I think it's important to, to say the word because it's a really uncomfortable word to say, racism. It's also important to point out that I am not saying that the virus is a racist virus or that, that everybody that is participating in discussion about the, the pandemic is racist. What I'm saying is that systems and structures have been put into place over centuries that have been based in those racial inequities and that have perpetuated over those centuries into the systems and structures that we have today that make it so that more people um, in minority populations are living in low-income housing, are unable to advance through wealth building to be able to get jobs that they can shelter from home and work from home, making it so that they are less likely to have access to good health care either because they don't have access to insurance or because they live in a, an area where just the quality of care that is given in care facilities there is lower standards than what would be given in another area that is not predominantly minority. And there is countless data that has been published that has demonstrated that the types of care that people receive is different depending on where they are. And so when you take a step back and think about this snowball effect that these structural, um, these structural uh, systems of oppression that have built to perpetuate this, and then you also look at the fact that in the, in the Black and Hispanic and Indigenous communities, there are higher levels of 
uh, higher rates of hypertension and diabetes and uh, the cardiovascular disease and, and obesity, many of those medical conditions can be still be tied to those structural inequities. Thank you for that thorough perspective, Dr. Marcellin. Dr. Pickett, I'd like to turn to you. A lot of what Dr. Marcellin was just speaking about in regard to the structural system of racism built in, what can be done to reduce or eliminate these disparities? Dr. Marcellin gave a fantastic review of of the key factors. And I think that's where we really want to would want to start in terms of thinking about uh, intervention. So um, as we think about those factors, they really exist across a continuum with who is at greatest risk for exposure and thus acquisition, um, who is getting tested after disease acquisition, who's at greatest risk for severe disease, hospitalization and death. And Dr. Marcella noted um, all of the uh, determinants uh, to exposure risk. Uh, so the uh, work exposures, the considerations around the inability to physically or socially distance uh, in the context of uh, residential housing uh, arrangements and high density. We need to think about uh, how we address those, uh, the considerations around um, jails, prisons, and housing, uh, homeless shelters. How do we uh, address those, both in terms of thinking about the historical and contemporaneous context related to who is in our jails and prisons and why, the distrust of institutions and the fear of presentation for care um, that also could impact the uh, COVID-19 continuum uh, for multiple longstanding historical reasons uh, as well, uh, going back to uh, events in which social and public health compacts for community protection. Breaking of that has had long-lasting adverse impacts and trust uh, events such as the Tuskegee syphilis study. And so thinking about how we build trust with communities uh, in terms of messaging and outreach issues of testing and provision of resources uh, for insurance coverage, the lack of insurance as a barrier to both testing and to care, uh, as well as uh, the heightened burden of uh, chronic health conditions, as, as Dr. Marcellin raised, and the, for example, from the hospitalization data that came out initially from CDC, that approximately 90% of hospitalized adults had at least one underlying medical condition, and how uh, those are long-standing factors. Uh, um, how does we address the high blood pressure, the obesity, the chronic lung disease, the asthma, diabetes, and heart disease, and thinking also, I think, about preventive care for those conditions as well. Um, to add uh, a biological frame, there, there are multiple studies that actually suggest social stress may disrupt human biological systems in a way that leads to frailty or biological vulnerability to severe illness or death when the body is hit with a challenge or insult. And SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 clearly uh, an unprecedented external challenge that is preying particularly on the most vulnerable and frail amongst us, causing those persons to be more likely to be hospitalized and die. So we really have to go back to those initial social determinants. In the near term, uh, for COVID-19 messaging, we need effective and sustained health communication and outreach around prevention and care. And we need to have that communication be culturally congruent for different communities, whether sensitive to language, histories, legacies, prevailing attitudes or beliefs. We need to ensure equity and access to testing. Uh, and we need to have the data, uh, ongoing effective data more broadly, uh, because we need the data on who's being impacted uh, at a very fine level 
and the factors that may affect poor health for certain communities, because that's ultimately what will inform policy to improve health. Um, and again, addressing longstanding health disparities and structural considerations for which uh, there really is a robust literature that exists, and we need to start putting those things into practice. You raise some excellent points there, Dr. Pickett. Dr. Marcellin, coming back to you now, how can we respond to the impacts of longstanding inequities and the outcomes we are seeing right now? The way that I tend to frame this uh, is what can we do during the pandemic to address these disparities, and then what can we do in the long term? And I think Dr. Pickett gave a great overview of things that we need to be doing now to address the disparities now. Over the long term, I think there are a lot of different ways that we can address it. One of the first things I think is important, and uh, because we have data that shows that there are better outcomes in terms of how individuals perceive uh, their routine health maintenance care, vaccines, um, cardiovascular care, uh, when the their physician is of a similar race or ethnic background to them. For that data, I think it's important to take a step back and look at the fact that we have less than 5% of our um, physician population mean African American, um, uh, you know, s similar, smaller numbers being uh, from Latino populations, even very, very minute numbers being from uh, Native American uh, populations. And so, in order for us to uh, address providing care that is culturally congruent, I think it's important for us to invest in uh, developing uh, physicians and, and healthcare professionals who uh, are from diverse backgrounds. And there are a number of different ways to do that, starting you know, through the pipeline all the way from um, kindergarten throughout um, professional life, but then also thinking about increasing the number of physicians that are and healthcare professionals that are uh, available to service lower income areas to reduce the healthcare deserts that may be available so that um, people don't have to travel as far to be able to find healthcare that they can trust. And part of that is also from a national uh, leveling, meaning increasing of public funding of agencies that support minority healthcare. For example, like Indian Health Services and um, federally qualified healthcare um, centers. And, you know, also similarly investing in communities and schools and businesses that are owned by minorities and supporting minorities running for office and, and um, supporting um, historically black colleges and universities. Uh, all of this helps to increase the, uh, the presence of a diverse workforce that we have already seen minority um, healthcare professionals disproportionately practice in areas that are served 
serving minority populations. And so by doing that, we will be providing more opportunities for delivering culturally congruent care. Other things that um, we need to be looking forward for includes ensuring that there are standard protocols that are implemented for any sorts of quality initiatives or uh, other programs that are implemented in, in hospitals or in healthcare facilities. Uh, and everything, all of these protocols are implemented through an equity lens. We need to have more minorities enrolled in clinical trials. And if we think uh, about how the clinical trial scene is, is unfolding for COVID-19, um, one of the questions that I have uh, is how many of the patients that are being enrolled in active trials for treatment of COVID-19 are patients from minority populations, especially since we are seeing that they are being disproportionately impacted. Do they have the same access to care even if it's experimental care. And now I recognize that that is something that is, um, uh, we cannot make that statement without a context of understanding that there is a lot of mistrust and distrust in healthcare system as a, as a whole when it comes to clinical, any sort of experimental treatment because of, again, um, systemic uh, factors from in the past, if you think about Tuskegee syphilis experiment, but uh, even navigating through that history and recognizing that distrust is there, there still must be a coordinated effort to enroll more minority populations in these clinical trials because we know that they are being disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. Thank you for that perspective, Dr. Marcellin. What lessons are most critical now, Dr. Piggott, in light of the impacts of these disparities we just mentioned on efforts to contain and curtail the spread of COVID-19, plus reduce its impact on individuals and communities? Appreciably, the coronavirus pandemic is a singular stress event that has uh, exposed in stark relief really the tremendous uh, disparities and vulnerability within our communities. Uh, it has in many ways placed a harsh spotlight on where we've been, where we are, uh, and really the significant work that needs to take place to get us to a more equitable future. And in talking about equity, uh, health equity, as Dr. Marcellin raised, is a fundamental frame through which these emerging disparities in COVID-19 burden and outcomes must be seen. And so health equity itself has been defined as the state in which everyone has the opportunity to attain full health potential, and no one is disadvantaged from achieving this potential because of social position or any other socially defined circumstance. And so as COVID-19 really continues to stress and ravage our communities, it has sharply unveiled the pre-existing disparate frailty and vulnerability of key population groups to poor health, uh, and really brings again strongly to the fore that the opportunity to attain full health potential is not being afforded to all. So in fighting this pandemic, we really have to recommit to achieving health equity. In doing so, we're really committing fundamentally to a common humanity. And while our discussion today uh, has primarily centered on the US, the themes we have discussed extend globally as well. There has long been the appreciation that infections know no borders 
And this pandemic has brought hopefully strong appreciation of this fact as the virus rapidly spread to all corners of our globe with profound and durable impact on all aspects of our lives. And as we look globally, it's really critical for us to take a deep look into who has access to care and who does not, who has the opportunity to achieve their full health potential and who does not, and a critical imperative to close these access and opportunity gaps for the benefit of our full humanity. I think there's a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. that I believe aptly applies to this moment. He noted, we are all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. This virus has shown us clearly that we are indeed inextricably intertwined and all in this together. There's a fierce urgency of now, and we have to lift all boats in common purpose to rise above this together, leaving no one behind. I think doing so will be to the benefit of all of us. Very well said and very powerful insight, Dr. Piggott. At this time, I'd like to offer the floor for any final thoughts. Dr. Marcellin. Thank you for having this conversation. Uh, it's something that we definitely need to keep talking about. And when I take a 30,000 foot view of what is the impact of these disparities and what do they mean for us? We need to care about people who are more than just ourselves. We need to care about others who are different from us. Um, and we as a, as a society, as a community, uh, it can be really easy to see the disparities that we're discussing and think, oh, this is not really a problem of my people, whoever, you know, an individual's persons are. And I think that is something that can be pretty dangerous because like Dr. Piggott says, it, things like this that affect even some of us in society do have a larger impact on the rest of society. And when we live in silos and think about um, things, emergencies like this as being only problems for certain groups of people, then we lose great opportunities to be able to think big. The, you know, the, the last thing that I would say is this has to really make us stop and think about what are these systems that are perpetuating these disparities and how can we dismantle them? Because it, time is past for us to be tiptoeing around the discussion of race and structural racism and bias and these impacts on life and health and society because it is literally causing people to die. Health disparities are preventable and we need to work harder to prevent them. Health uh, as a human right, uh, everyone deserves to have access uh, to care and uh, to have access to high quality care. Uh, and I think what uh, this pandemic uh, has drawn out for us is really again, unveiling the layers of the long-standing challenges uh, that we've had across multiple domains in 
ensuring maximal opportunity for all, everyone should have the ability to live a full, healthy life, to enjoy that life for themselves and for their loved ones. Uh, and I think we really need to double, double back down and work through all of these preceding determinants uh, that have been so starkly brought to the fore through the stress of COVID-19. At this time, I'd like to thank our very knowledgeable panel, Drs. Jasmine Marcellin and Damani Piggott, for their participation in today's conversation. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. I'm Nadia Singh.